back. Pulls up for three. Boom! Knocks it down. Curry from the corner at three. Puts it in. For overtime. Makes it. Garrett. A warm welcome for me, Mark Wood, to the latest edition of the MVP cast, brought to you in association with Total Environmental Compliance. Check out their consultancy services for a whole range of environmental issues at tcompliance.co.uk. Now, our guest this time out has been on court for some of the biggest games and some of the biggest stages in basketball, but not as a player, but instead as a referee. He's one of the most decorated, celebrated officials the UK has ever produced, and he's here to tell us what it's like to keep some of the biggest men and women in the business in check. Alan Richardson, welcome to the MVP cast. Nice to be here. I mean, you started out as a ref in 1971, which I would like to point out is before I was born. Um, but what? talk us through the initial stages. What Most of us gravitate towards wanting to, to be players, dream of being players. How did you end up getting into being a referee at the very outset? Well, if you read the opening paragraphs of my book when it's finished, <laughs> no, I'll tell you what it was. You see, I was involved in football before I even got into basketball. And I was, uh, as a physical education teacher, I moved to uh, Yorkshire after I finished university, and then we went to Guildford to live. And I came across a gentleman called Brian Naismith, who was the director of sport, he was also the coach of the Southern Pirates in the old Southern League. And I used to go to the uh, sports centre every night for a fitness session, whether it was hockey, basketball, rugby, or summer. And I was never very good with my hands. Uh, I've got to be careful how I say this. I wasn't very good <laughs> with my hands. Some people might say something different. But... Uh, <laughs> it's children listening, Alan, do so. <laughs> he said to me, he just said, uh, hey. I said, what? He said, check this. And it was a whistle. I said, what's this? He says, you're obviously better with your feet than what you are with your hands. He said, so don't mess the scrimmage up. Check the whistle. I said, but I have no idea about the rules. And he says, well, don't worry, because every referee that we get is the same problem. And that started it. So I was going to scrimmages, and then uh, unqualified. <laughs> I was refereeing, like, inter-varsity games. But, so I got the motivation to go to the Blackpool Easter School in, uh, yeah, in Easter time... 71 and Bill Taylor the, the, the former FIBA referee who, who actually became one of my first actual referee mentors Bas basketball became a religion it was I was I was still playing football like you know uh, semi-pro and and local Sunday I used to love me Sunday football never mind so that's how it started and then I started refereeing in, in the local league, the Surrey League, South Thames League. And then I, I thought, I can do this. I like this. And, and I was coaching as well in football all the way to 1996. But that's another story. I'll come to that. So I started refereeing and then I en enrolled on the level two. I had to have a year and a half at that level, refereeing all of Surrey, Kent, Sussex, London, got me level two. And then I moved after three years up to the northeast again, back. And I enrolled on the level one course. And I was mentored by Brian Coleman, who's now retired. So I did that. And then at the end of, uh, the, end of the season, 1978, I was nominated to the national junior final at uh, the YMCA in London. And uh, this was my assessment. So oh, all these guys were sitting in the stands assessing me on this court with Nick Stonard, who was a newly qualified FIBA guy the year before. So at the end of it, they, was, they said that we would go away and make a decision. And then they must have made a decision because the next thing I knew was, was a letter via the Federation from FIBA to invite me to a candidate clinic in Bucharest, 1978. 
the, the land of Transylvania. <laughs> <laughs> Romania and Bulgaria and Hungary. Oh, well, it's fine. Something to get so, your teeth into. Oh, oh yeah, kind oh. of. But uh, I was very successful in that one. There were 36 candidates from all over the place. And uh, three of us got very good. There was myself, uh, Bernard Kloster from France, and Kuralic from uh, what was Yugoslavia then. So that was the start of the international one. And then uh, it was like <laughs> Jason in the Argonauts. I got on my boat and went, and it was like story after story after story. What, but, do, you, what do you think? I mean, with your referee in local league or universities or or whatever. But when you're getting to the sort of European slash international level, what what do you need to be a top quality referee? A top coach of referees or a top, top referee. quality referee. Right. Well, I would say it's about your own personalities. But let's talk with this, the specifics. You've got to be honest. You've got to be absolutely fair. There's no heave-ho this way and that way. No, no. Every, you've got to be humble. I know I'm a bit of an extrovert, but, but seriously, when you get on the court, at that stage in your career, you know, I, I had 20 years at this level, but I'm talking now when I start. You've got to be humble. You've got to be approachable. You've got to be absolutely fair, which comes hand in hand with honesty. And again, as I said, humility comes with approachability. You cannot say to players and coaches, which I've heard over the years, shut up, sit down, be quiet. I don't want to talk to you. I'm not going to talk to you. If, you. if you keep talking to me, I'm going to give you a technical foul. Well, that is a recipe for disaster. And I, I know now I spend most of my time teaching referees and assessing referees. And those are the basic qualities that I start with. And then you can be a bit more... Uh, <clears throat> what I do now is I give help and advice to other referees. I would... <laughs> I've sent a lot of people of, uh, of my early games and I said, I became this because I had a role medal. And I'm not saying that you, I should be your role model. Be your own model. You can look at other people and it, it's a bit like a salad. You know, you take, <laughs> you take a, a buffet, you know, you take a, I like this, I like that, I don't this, I don't that. And I did that. You know, there were a lot of good referees around it. In, in this country at that time, also up in Scotland. And then it's important to be nice. And I don't like the other one where it says, it's nice to be important. No, it's important to be nice. You are not the focus of a game. And go on. Because it, it must have, well, if you look at the way though that you're developing refs, and I've been in one of your, or possibly more of your clinics when you're at the big European tournaments. And it, there's an incredible amount of, you know, technical breakdown. There's a lot of videos used. I mean, it's it, it's, it mirrors what the players have got more now using the technology aspect of it. How does that, in what way does that differ now in terms of the route to improvement? Because I guess before, you've got lots of video types of your games. I'm sure you watched them back, but now that precision and you know cutting of a game, even just immediately after a game, you can cut tape for a referee in the same way that a coach will cut tape for his players. How does that change the approach now of refs? Well, the big emphasis, well, I have a big emphasis, which is picked up and generated with other people. Now, because we have mostly three-person officiating, there is local 2PO, but in my time, there was... We didn't have the advantage of the third third referee until about 1999 when the BBL introduced it in uh, in the trophy or the cup, whatever it was. You've got to be a team member, either two of you or three of you. 
that's what you when you walk on that court that person or those people are the only friends you've got in that <laughs> game i'm telling you seriously you've got to be a communicator within your team and with the two teams taking part and one of the biggest weaknesses which which is not really been resolved people are reluctant to use verbal communication non-verbal communication via all the signals and signs that we have it's not enough people are trying to get away with maximum non-verbal and minimum because they don't have the confidence to relate to coaches and players especially in a an emotional environment and when you do this you've got to do what's right for the game not what's in your back pocket the rule book or the other back pocket the mechanics what you got to do is use what's in in your between your ears common sense and I, a phrase that i reduced introduced years ago feel for the game you've got to feel for the game because people say well how can i have a feel for the game if i've never played and i just said well i played high high level football so i have this innate experience and people say that the best referees come from retired players and i've even got retired coaches who've become referees <laughs> intricate game knowledge that newcomers in the role of officiating don't have at the beginning of their career i didn't have it i had to earn it sometimes painfully about going through the fire and experiencing oh you made a right cock up with that one uh, and and the players and the coaches are always very quick to tell you if they think it's the wrong call but it's not always the wrong call because as a coach I would do the same thing. I would challenge the referee and say, "Why is that a foul?" But it's it's a process of growing. But why is it though that if that's if that's such a, a help to have that feel for the game, why is it so difficult to persuade former players to go into coach or to go into refereeing? Because we see in the NBA, I think there's one or two players but it's, it's not any huge amount and okay the earlier you start the better it is but why has it been so difficult to get to get people to make that transition when surely that would help the game a lot more well i think it, it it's it's an understatement that former former players can be good referees mm. I'm, i'm not saying every former player suddenly became the top class referee but they have game knowledge which is priceless that somebody who comes from a a background that is not as playing background which is a big disadvantage and the other thing you got to remember is as that when you go on the court it's not about winning you're not doing any winning as a referee one of those two teams is going to be the winner and you have to make sure that the outcome is fair equitable and honest So why let's go back to the players. I I would start even before that. I go to the uh Central Venue League in at uh, Newcastle Eagles which is youngsters going up and there's a load of young referees young referees and all of them are players. They play for the local clubs and I, and I just said well you got 12 people on the bench you might have two bench warmers. Why don't you ask each team to qualify one or two of those end of the bench players to become referees? And I've seen a lot of the local referees and some have gone on nationally to become very good referees because they didn't have the court time but now they'll get whole court time as referees. When you it was a, a quote you made and it was a, a conference I was at and I saved the, the slides of it and it said it was about you know referees being in that sort of inferno of of the situation and you know players going at one ear and coaches going at another ear and you said yeah the officials who can't control their emotions will find themselves fighting those inner battles and what you know hard is that for you 
manifest itself that you you know you've got a player there you know a coach that's or a referee that's feeling the pressure and then suddenly there's all those conflicts inside how do you how do you experience that how do you deal with it well i had the advantage of uh, after i've been teaching for 10 years i went back to university for a higher degree in psychology and one of the things i was fascinated about was uh, there was a a semester in uh, oh, what was it called? Uh, ah, behavior modification. That's it. So it was it was a study of how people deal with emotions, physically, verbally, and so on. So I I came up with this phrase quite a long time ago and said, is that if you cannot control the inside, you will never control the outside. So, as a referee, you've got to be totally in control of yourself. So, you might be absolutely fuming underneath, which I've done many times. I wanted to punch somebody's lights out, <laughs> but you can't. You can't, you know. You cannot rise to the, <laughs> the bait, so to speak. But So, I started preaching this thing about you've got to control the inside before you control the outside. And that's, it's a slogan that's still stuck. And I still, I still believe in it, and I still preach it. So I'll reverse the question to you. Right, come on, Mark, get on the court. <laughs> it's your first game, and you've got players like me, Ian Gordon and a few others, and they're, big, they're giving you hell from start to finish. What are you going to do? You can't put your defensive wall up because you're not sitting. You're actually running around in control of an active environment. So I'll ask you, what do you think you would have to do? I'm terrified because I, 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 I have my level one refereeing badge. Many, for many moons ago, I done under your old friend, George Valentine. And I have to yeah. say, I, I always find it most terrifying experience. I didn't do that many games. But I think the, the thing that, intimidated me most was that complaint from the coach or the complaint from the player when suddenly you're second guessing yourself which I guess if you're at a low level is very easy to do because frankly you may have got the call wrong but when you get to that bigger level though does that intimidation factor ever really disappear or is it a question of different degrees of how you cope with it well if I mention a number of active referees as well as uh, retired referees. Uh, I had a long conversation last week with uh, two very good friends of mine, Malcolm Heath from Birmingham. Uh, I didn't actually referee many games with Malcolm until we got invited to a, a friendly tournament in France a few years back. And he, Malcolm was strict, if that's the right word. Yeah, the, the word is strict. He, he was a maths teacher by profession. I was, I was physical education. But he was very strict. And now if I go to the other end of the spectrum of an active, well, he is really, is Will Jones from Wales. Well, Will is an absolute personality in itself. <laughs> you know. I, I could tell you a lot of stories that I wouldn't dare tell you or even put them into print. But he... He has the gift of the gab, you know, and there's, uh, I, I remember, well, George was a bit like that as well. You know, he mm. would have a, you know, quite a pocket full of phrases that he could There was a bit out. of showbiz about George and Will. That's a good expression because referees are actors, actors on the stage of the basketball court because you, a lot of people change their personalities is that it's like, encourages them to become very enthusiastic, very overly communicative. And a, f a few times, the bleep bleep, the bleep bleep here and, here and there, backwards and forwards. So, but I mean, that, that is frowned upon, but it's what we call industrial language. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's private between the referee and the player or the referee and the coach. So, but a lot of things are built up through that kind of backwards and forwards. It generates respect. And respect 
doesn't come in a pretty pink parcel with a ribbon on, you know, like a box of chocolates handing somebody. No, no, you've got to earn it. And you've got to, like I said, go through the fire. You've got to make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. You, you can go and watch the NBA now. You can go watch the EuroLeague. People still make mistakes. They're only human. There is no perfect game and there's no perfect individual, player, coach or referee. We all learn from each other. Are you glad that you're not refereeing in the social media era? Because I imagine if you're a leading ref and you've got a Twitter account, it must be quite interesting. <laughs> I, I was talking to Etta Messina because I've got a lot of uh, paragraphs sent by referees and players from all over the place for my book. And uh, Etta was uh, relating about it a game I refereed in Treviso. It was Treviso against Ortez. And about halfway through, uh, the, uh, because <coughs> Ortez were a really good team at that time. I can't remember the year, but they were absolutely hammering Treviso. And Ettore was the national team coach at this time. He was sat in the stands watching the game. And about somewhere in the half time, when uh, I think the fans were getting irate because the team was getting hammered, uh, a Coke bottle come bouncing on the, not, not glass, plastic, one of these big two-litre Coke bottles came bouncing off the court. And then, this is my internal voice, I was pissed off. <laughs> oh, I was furious that somebody had stopped the game. So I, I blew my whistle, walked across to the uh, loudspeaker man, and I said, if I don't get the person who threw that bottle on the coach within five minutes, I'm going to clear the stance. And, th and this guy looked at me with a <laughs> horrendous shock saying, what? You can't do that. I said, I've just told you, announce it. So he did. And then, whoa, everybody went absolutely crazy. You know, they were, boy, stupid Englishman. And I, I didn't understand much Italian at that time. but. They're obviously saying, well, have a good job, lad, you know, all this kind of thing. So, so I counted me what, oh, the clock, sorry, on, on the water. And I said, right, you've got one minute, he's not here. And I, so I started counting, 60, 59, 40, and, and he started to panic. And he said, this is the last time, he's down to 30 seconds, and if this <laughs> person doesn't come, he's going to, clear the stance and all of a sudden there was this guy he was bouncing on two pairs of hands from the back of the, the back of the stance to the front they were like shunting him down onto the court police came and set him off so I restarted the game da, da, da. no more interruptions nothing I got all the boos and the catcalls at the end because they lost so <laughs> when I went after the game for the dinner, uh, Maurizio Gherardini, who was the uh, Treviso general manager, man, yeah. yeah, who's now uh, general manager in Fenerbahce. Mm. I've, I've known Maurizio since a long, long time. And he said to me, he said, why did you do that? And I just said, probably the old-fashioned English sense of fair play. It was against the rules. It was... And sp spoiling the game kind of thing and he said well I said it took a lot of courage to do that and I said well I must tell you uh, it's the first time I've ever done it I did it again <laughs> two or three times during my career and there's even better sto stories later down the so Etter reminded me about this game and he said I really respected you for what you did he said the English sense of fair play and, and he said You've always been your old man, you, you know, you're very strong and that it, it's made you as many enemies as it's made you friends. But he said, I respect you for, for the way you conduct yourself. I said, well, thanks very much. For, so he said, well, make sure it's in the book. So, so it was. I mean, but you, you that, talk about, though, about friends, making friends like, like Ettore, but when you talk about the enemies, I mean, you know, refs, you know, you've seen refs absolutely in 
I don't want to you know stereotype it, but Greece and Turkey, places like that, that it can get pretty hostile, and you know you're you're escorted out by police and all that kind of stuff. What's the most terrified you ever find yourself at a game? 1987 European Championships in Athens. I refereed the Soviet Union against the Greeks. The Greeks were the host nation. And it was the uh, first or second game that it was the Soviet Union against the, uh, the, the host Greece. And it was even Stevens, because the Greeks had a very good team as well, mind, with Gallis, Bandinakis, Fasoulis, a lot of talented players. And the Russians were awesome, all their players. But they didn't have uh, Sabonis or Tachenko, but that's another story. Anyway, about a minute and a half from the end of the game, uh, it was Ian Stevens, and I can't remember this. It was a six-figure score, anyway, three on three. Uh, I called uh, the fifth foul on Yanakis, and that was like uh, a volcano exploding in the stands. And it was the game went on, the, the free throw was scored, the game finished. Whoa! <laughs> Here come the Greeks. I mean, they had to run like hell out of the arena because it was the race, you know. The, the, it's got a great name, you know. The Stadium of Friendship and Peace. <laughs> Neither ever exists. <laughs> but that, right, we, were in the gym, we were in the locker room for three hours. The police wouldn't let us go until they got a SWAT vehicle. <laughs> the only way they would let, they would let us get out of the gym all the spectators were outside waiting still at three hours after they thought they would get a piece of the action so anyway we got to the um, to the hotel eventually but those three hours I wouldn't say I would have nightmares about it but it, it had a big emotional effect on me for quite a, after because I'd never seen human behaviour like that before and it was a huge learning curve because not, not long after that, I was back in Greece for quite a few club games, you know. So I was already called the Butcher of Athens. <laughs> I was well prepared. Did that, um, if, when, <laughs> when, you, when you get that sort of situation, though, does it ever make you think twice about carrying on? Because yeah, it's, it's still, you know, you know you'll have to go back again. You know that could happen in the same situation again. Does it... Does it give you pause for thought? Yeah. Well, uh, shortly after that, the following season, which was the 86-87 season, I was nominated to Aris in Saloniki, and they were playing FC Barcelona. Well, both teams were pretty powerful, to say the least. And um, we had uh, second half, Barcelona was uh, leading by 16 points and suddenly the lights went out and the everybody was running here there and everywhere the players the coaches table officials and of course the two referees and everything was coming on the court bottles coins you name it and Stefano Cazzaro my colleague was hit on the head with an onyx table lighter a heavy thing we found it when we went back when the lights came on. We were in the locker room. He was having three hit, uh, stitches put in his head while we were trying to resolve. The Spaniards didn't want to play again. And I said to Carlos Bagge, the manager, I said, Mr. Stankovic says I have to finish the game. No, 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 I'm not, I'm not going back. I'm going back. I said, well, Carlos, you either go on the court or I'm going to write 20 nil on, on the score. And you're winning by 16 points. So... So I said to the head of the police and the, the head of the stadium security, how long will it take to empty the stands? He says, 45 minutes. I says, right, do it now. Tell them that the game has been cancelled. So about an hour later from when the lights went out, they came back on again. And we found out that somebody took an axe to one of the transformers outside. <laughs> they must have had an emergency one, but... Uh, Anyway, so we came again out, and it was the first time, so 
like almost 10 years as an international referee, I heard thump, 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 thump. It was weird. I was in a, a 7,500 stadium, and all I could hear was the bounce of the ball because the Greeks were subdued, and the, 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 everybody was still shell-shocked. And there was like, uh, I think, two and a half minutes left. Mm. And it was just, it was weird. It was like nobody wanted to play. And all we had was the table. And on the opposite side was about half a dozen journalists and the TV crew. And the two referees and the two teams. No spectators, nothing. And of course, that didn't endear me to the Greeks. Because the next morning I went to the airport I'm in the queue for my passport, right? So I get to the front in a glass cage. And, and he says, right, can I have your passport, please? So I opened it to the thing. And he looks at the passport, and then he looks at me and said, Are you were the referee last night. <laughs> and I said, uh, yes. And he spat in my passport, closed it, and then handed it to me. And you know what, Mark? That's the one and only time in my life as an official, I nearly lost the plot. And I felt like smacking him in the face through his glass screen. You know, because it was just, you know, he's a policeman. He spat <laughs> in the passport and handed it back. And I said, well, well, welcome to the Greece. Beware <laughs> the Greek bearing gifts. What do I mean? You mean you've been but very I got for- loads like that. You've been very fortunate, though, to do a lot of, you know, great games, enjoyable games, you know, big stages. I mean, and you've done, you know, World Championships, you know, Eurobaskets, etc. What for you was the game that was the pinnacle? You know, what what would you define as the moment where uh, when you look back and that was the game that that I hit the top. Well, well, nine eighty, no, eighty six was the World Championships. And that was uh, the semi-final between uh, the Soviet Union and uh, Yugoslavia. And we had that controversial uh, half-court by my Argentinian friend, which actually allowed the, the Soviets to take the game into overtime where they won. And that is a game I watch again and again and again. It's still in my uh, video machine here. I watch it because it was such a incredible game, quite honestly. A huge learning curve again. You know, because I always take the view that I'm learning something from every game I referee. And I'm not just talking about international, you know, domestic games. Even when I was uh, refereeing in the Scottish League, which I did after I'd retired internationally, I, you, I always believe that you... You learn something, however little, that makes you a better referee and also a better person. Who was the, um, it's almost a hit last year, who's the funniest player or coach that you ever had to deal with and trade a bit of what we would now call bants? Well, (laughs) I'll have to go back to Greece for this. (laughs) Because later on, uh, I, I went back to Aris. And, and they had a new coach called Yanni uh, uh, Ionidis. And this was uh, Aris against uh, Den Bosch from Holland. From, uh, Holland. I was with, uh, uh, I, can't, I can't remember who the referee was, but um, <laughs> I threw the ball up and I waited for the uh, ball g- was going to the opposite direction to me. As I start to move towards the ball suddenly the ball came flying back to me so I had to run like hell to the end line at this end and Gallus was called for a foul by my colleague I mean you cannot call fouls on Greek gods and the place went bloody mental and (laughs) I'm coming off the line there's Yanidis takes his jacket off and throws it on the court. And I think, oh my God. And then I says, well, technical. And as I start to walk towards him and everything, but it was like uh, Guy Fawkes night. Everything came in and I start thinking, 
oh, well, uh, maybe it's not a technical foul. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, yes, uh, I know what these these people are like. So I got I got to the bench because his was the, uh, the nearest bench, and I walked towards him, and I walked past. I didn't even make eye contact with him, and I just said, "Coach, if that jacket." Is not back where it should be <laughs> after I've <coughs> calmed my friend on the Dutch bench. When I turn around, you're not just getting a technical foul, you're going out. So I spoke to uh, Jan Decker, who, was the, who I knew him, you know, from a while. And I just go, Arsitanic, Arsitanic. I said, Jan, I had a look at this crowd. <laughs> he says, it's not my problem, it's your problem. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it is. You know, and I like to get out alive. So I said, if he puts, if he puts that jacket on, I've never seen it. You, you understood? Ah, well, as long as you do it for me. I said, yes, yes, I'll do it for you. Don't worry. So I got to the point where I have to stop and turn around. And honestly, I was saying, please, God, please, God, put the jacket on. Please put the jacket on. And I turned around and he's standing there with a jacket on. And I can tell you, it was like a weight coming off my shoulders. And I didn't change, you know, I didn't smile or anything like that. I just thought, oh, thank God. And I walked towards him and the commissioner starts shouting. I said, I'm in charge of this. I've dealt with it. That's it. And as I get up to him, I said, thanks very much, coach. I didn't make eye talk to him. And as I got past him, he tapped me on the backside and said, you owe me one. <laughs> <laughs> and after that, there wasn't a dicky bird. <coughs> in, the, in, the sec, in the second half, you know, they'd been throwing coins and I thought, well, I'll chance me arm. So I went to the, spect uh, the guy with the microphone and I said, would you please tell the spectators to stop throwing coins? We only accept paper money and he looked at me and I said yes yes it's a joke he announced this in Greek and the fans were howling with laughter and they actually took some paper money so anyway that must have been a good night out and the best champagne oh that was a good night out but I didn't even touch the money I'll tell you that now I mean you did it along with international games you did a, you know many many years in you know, the domestic league and the BBL and, you, know, and you, know, you said even the English and Scottish yeah. leagues below that I mean we've had a lot of very colourful characters pass through over the last you know 30-40 years who was the biggest pain in the ass for a ref? I wouldn't say he was a, a pain in the ass but he was a, a dominating person and the way he conducted himself was with integrity, and that was uh, Bill McInnes. It, it, it was tough because he was such a good player and uh, knew the game inside out. He was, he was a big man, um, and I had a lot of respect for him, probably too much respect. Um, England? I can't, I can't really think. Oh, well... Everybody said that I had a big dislike for Steve Bontrager. I know he has a huge dislike for me, but <laughs> that wasn't in the case. But he never forgave me of calling five fouls in the cup final at Wembley. But I said, that's the way it was. And it was nothing personal. But, uh, but I can honestly say I, I've never really disliked somebody maybe short term because even when I've gone back after stop referee you know working for the EuroLeague or working for FIBA I've seen loads of these guys you know former players who are coaching or just icons in, the, in their own country and I, I think I've got a, a pretty good reputation a lot of respect well certainly the paragraphs that I've been sent from players and coaches suggest that anyway when you look at that though now in terms of that that career path and you know you spent a lot of years as the head of referee training at FIBA how tough is yeah. it now though to be a BBL ref 
and to be the next Chris Dodds, who has you know progressed further in European competition than anyone. Well, you're years. walking into but a to political get into arena that, here. Well, that, that, what my question is, but, I guess that is the politics of side of this. Is that something we kind of don't don't see and don't notice? Well, the the BBL isn't the BBL that I used to referee in, mm. and that's as much as I want to say that. Mm. But it is reflected in what happens to the other side of the, the game. The, the level of competition affects the level of officiating and the lack of British teams playing in European competitions doesn't help. I mean, uh, Leicester tried and no disrespect for them, but it was, it, it was a mountain that they couldn't climb. But I honestly believe that the, uh, there is a, um, a relation between the quality of the competition and the quality of the referees, because it's what you get used to. I mean, um, <clears throat> there are a lot of countries in Europe in the 70s, 80s, England, you, national team and club teams would wipe the floor with them. Like, you know, uh, the French were pretty good, but we used to beat them regularly. Now we don't even get close to them. And then uh, some of the smaller countries have, have emerged and also emerged with very good referees, like Lithuania. Uh, the Italians have always had good basketball. Uh, the, uh, the Greeks as well. Not so much the Turks, but the Turks have got some, because they have a very, very good first division. And the Spanish, of course, well... There was a time when I worked in the EuroLeague, we had 16 Spanish referees on mm. the list. So th there's definitely a relationship between the quality of the competition and within that is the quality of the training that the referees receive. Um, it, like I said, it's a, it's a political football because I, I seem to spend most of my time as an assessor in the BBL for the Scots because I always felt uh, a large gratitude for the opportunities that the Scots gave me when I was coming up through the ranks. So when Chris Dodds rings me up or uh, Ian MacDonald or Marianne or uh, uh, Shaw, I will give up a, an evening or an afternoon for them. So, but is it tougher though because to be in a situation where you know they don't, you see the support obviously you would get in the ACB or the NBA on another stratospheric level. You know, well, if you're in the BBL, you don't, you're not going to get. Yeah, you're not full time. You know, you're you're doing these probably for game fees, which are not much different to what you got paid thirty years ago. Yeah, but is, it's is not that, about is money, impossible? Mark. Mark, mm. it's not about money. Mm. A lot of it is due to geography. Too many referees are locked into a, a little uh, area. They can only referee because of the, not because of the fees, but for the, you know, the, the, they're limited in mileage and distance. And until such time that we as a country can find a, a substantial sponsor. You know, we had Carlsberg for nine years. And I mean, that was in the heydays there. You know, we need a, a very, very good sponsor to, to try and take back or try and create the same ethos and quality of uh, games that we had in the, in, certainly in the 80s. You know, we've only got two clubs that have their own, uh, own arena, and that's Leicester and Newcastle. And... Which I'm sure they're really suffering during the lockdown, whereas the other clubs, uh, all all they've done is just cancelled their their bookings. Whereas Leicester and, and Newcastle are dependent on their income, and I and I really feel for them. I really do. I mean, you had that you had that spell when you were on the board of of basketball England there, and and what I mean with all the experience that you've got, what was that experience like for you, and and how do you how do you view that? as an organization now that you've been on the inside and in, inside that tent for a while? Well, I'll be honest and say that's a closed book. 
but it was an interesting experience and it was an interesting experience uh, meeting some good people you know like Seddy Frederick and uh, Steve Bucknell uh, it was and uh, again there was a lot of politics but I, f I felt after about a year in, in, into a three year term I'm in the I'm a square peg in a round hole because all I was interested in is, was raising the bar for officials, getting things, which is what I'm still doing now. Without, I don't need a position to uh, uh, work with the officiating advisory group. And we've got some good guys on this now around us putting work in. But that's on the technical side. Um, so... I did say when I took it on, I'm not a politician. I'm not a diplomat. And if I, if I want to say something, I'll say it, which didn't always go down well. And like I said, it's a closed book. Is that a, is that a symptom, though, of, of the leadership of the time, or is that just a symptom of, of the politics? Well, I think the easy answer for me was just to say that, you know, the politics about England basketball... Uh, the BBF, the BBL, and anything else that's going to be thrown into the political quagmire. Complicated subject. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not one for th throwing mud about. Until your book. Nobody's comes perfect. Up. None of us are perfect. <laughs> None of I, us are perfect. And, 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 last thing, I mean, you know. You keep mentioning this book. What, what's it going to be about? When are we going to be able to read it? And um, will it be suitable for children? When what? Say that again. And uh, when will we will we be able to read this book? And will it be suitable for children? Well, <laughs> well if you ask the Scots, the Welsh, the English, and the Irish, if their politicians are going to come on the same same route because everybody's talking the same thing but in a different way you know like uh, I, f I actually thought that we were going to have uh, some light at the end of the tunnel but uh, I was reasonably optimistic but now I, I, I've actually become an avid reader of the daily bulletins you know these cor coronavirus bulletins mm. by the politicians and then and then the pundits after but it's like it's like a lily pond. Everybody's you know, like frogs hopping from one lily to the other, to the other, to the other, to the other. And I thought, we're not working together. You know, everybody everybody's fed up with the lockdown, but not everybody wants to be at ease if we're still going to be under the threat of of, of the virus, especially the youngsters. You know, we've lost thirty odd thousand deaths you know that's it's horrifying mm. so but i don't have an answer for you mark i mean everybody's talking about june july october november nobody knows because it's all it's it is in the hands of the scientists it shouldn't be in the hands of the politicians i mean last thing i wanted to ask you was about this book because you've been you've mentioned this book you're writing, and when firstly when will we be we be able to to read it? And if well, it, if, it, if it was a movie, would it be X-rated? Well, the book. Well, I've uh, I've got a ghost, and I've got two two proofreaders. So I've just got through ten years of a twenty-year career. So I've got another 10 years, which are going to take a lot longer because I've got so much documentation from 1988. Yeah, the, uh, the next 10 years is absolutely full of stories, tournaments, journeys. I've been all over the world. So I would like to think I'll have it finished sometime next year. Because all the coaches and the players who've contributed keep asking me, when's the book coming? When's the book coming? 
I've got to find a publisher first, but I was thinking about doing it through uh, Amazon self-publishing. So anyway, I'll see. I just want to finish the book, and then I'll take advice on with who and where to try and whether it's going to be on a Kindle or whether it's going to be a paperback. I don't know, Mark, but uh, I've, the proofread is I've got somebody who's a non-basketball person, uh, and I've got somebody who's a, a, a very well-known and respected basketball expert, and he's loving it. And I've I sent the first chapter to Etera, and he he thinks it's great, but he's a basketball person, isn't he? So I don't because what what Rob says to me is that your audience may, will not always be a basketball person. That's why you've got to, you've got to express yourself about your passion about what do you believe in and not just statistics scores uh, so on and so forth i said well you know i've never written a book before i've written uh, dissertations and thesis before but that's a different ball game but these are not academic uh, well there you go it is locked on everyone's either writing a book or starting a podcast so you might as well get in one of those anyway there you go there's your christmas present sorted if you're uh, looking for something for christmas 2021 alan it's been uh, terrific having you on the podcast and um, stay safe stay well keep uh, keep up the good work and uh don't lose that whistle all right i'll send you the invoice after <laughs> <laughs> thanks alan take care all right you can, cheers you can get you that's it for this edition. You can get all our previous editions at mvp247.com or subscribe via your preferred podcast provider. Please do leave us a review on yours, preferably a nice one. If you want to get in touch, reach out to me via Twitter at Mark Britbull. Another edition of the MVP cast coming very soon. But from me, Mark Woods, it is goodbye for now.